All right, so what a year it's been, huh? If you had asked me on December 31st, 2019, what I thought 2020 was going to hold, I honestly couldn't tell you what I would have said, but it probably wouldn't be this. You know, from everything that's happened this year, from the coronavirus and the uh, havoc that that's wreaked on our society and on our everyday life, who would have thought that the the heroes that we would have celebrated in 2020 would have been the grocery store workers and those who uh, own restaurants, you know, and of course our, our healthcare leaders. We're thankful for them and all the work that they do. But I don't know that I would have, have expected to have celebrated the grocery store clerks and the people who deliver food to my house so that I didn't have to go out and get it. The political unrest of the day that despite um, the election being over, still continues to roll. The cultural and the uh, personal outrest that, or, um, uh, uh, unrest that has come from different things that have happened in our society, from um, protests and and uh, different things that our country has faced. And all those things, if we stop and we think too long about it, can uh, cause fear in our hearts, can cause us to really wonder what's going on. And uh, as I think about 2020, I think I found a couple pictures that really just sum it up. 2020 every second, but wait, there's more. I remember when they talked about the murder hornets. I don't know if you remember that. That was back in June, so it was like 12 years ago. But these murder hornets that were coming, they were going to kill the bees and humans and decimate our population, which was right after, you know, the first wave of coronavirus seemed to subside. And then just everything else that's piled on top of it. I can't wait to see what November and December holds. You know, probably blizzards that dump 40 feet of snow on us and you know, we become hermits that live in igloos in our backyards in December. I, that seems like what's just on par for the course. But uh, 2020, every second, but wait, there's more. And I found it, the official watermelon of 2020. You know, you think of this big watermelon, nice and juicy, and you cut it open and two-thirds of the thing on the inside is rind. You know, that's what it feels like 2020 has been. And again, if we're honest... Thinking about these things too much can lead us to fear, and I've seen it. Um, I'm of the generation that um, was the first to really embrace social media. I have a Facebook account. I have a Twitter. Um, I have an Instagram that I rarely use because I'm just not that great at remembering to take pictures. But it doesn't take long to scroll through posts and just see fear in people's hearts. And I've been thinking a lot about that. And uh, when they asked me to speak, they originally asked me to speak on November 29th because I figured it would be hard to find someone to come in and do the last week, the day or a couple days after Thanksgiving. And then, you know, a couple weeks ago, they're like, hey, can you actually do the 8th instead because that's the week we can't find anybody to cover. I said, sure, I can do that. And so I thought, what can I talk about that I need to hear? 
And so I'm going to talk about fear today. And if for nobody else, I'm going to speak to myself for a little bit here. If you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn to Mark chapter 4. Talk about things in these unprecedented times. If I never have to hear that phrase again, I would be very happy. It's easy to feel fearful when you experience so many life-altering experiences like we have in 2020. I think I pushed the wrong button. I think it's my fault. What does God's word have to say about fear? And we're going to start in Mark chapter 4. We're going to look at three different experiences in the life of the disciples, and Peter especially, to see what truths we can glean about fear and how we should live in light of it. So Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35, is our first point. It's that we do not need to fear when circumstances are difficult. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35, says, And on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, that's Jesus, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he woke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? So, in this story, Jesus has just finished teaching. He's finished telling some parables, and people have been gathered around because Jesus is still new, he's fresh, he's exciting, and people want to hear what he has to say. And so, they come, and uh, there's a very large crowd. He's, he's in a boat from, teaching from the shore. And so, he's there, and apparently he can really project because you got people on the, on the shore listening to him. they got people on boats around him. So people are just surrounded Jesus. And he's teaching about the kingdom of God. And he tells parables so that people, understand, people around can hopefully understand what it is to be the kingdom of God. And, uh, and so night comes, and Jesus says, all right, it's time, it's time to go. It's time to leave. And so he says to the, to the disciples that are in the boat with him, let's take the boat across, let's go to the other side, and uh, we'll, we'll get away from this crowd. And so it says there in verse 36, leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. All right, so they didn't take time for Jesus to go and, you know, pack up stuff on the shore. They didn't take time to do much of anything other than just, hey, let's get the boat going. And so... They get in the boat, or they get going in the boat, and uh, across, or out of nowhere, this giant storm comes up. Now, the Sea of Galilee is known for these. It's not uncommon for the, the, sky to, the sky to be clear, not a cloud in the sky, and all of a sudden, a storm blows in, and you've got rain, you've got wind, you've got all of these different things. And so you would think that the disciples would be used to this, and they probably are. They probably got 
quite a bit of experience under their belt um, being on a boat in the sea. And so this probably isn't something that's remarkably new to them other than just the fierceness of this storm. And so the waves breaking into the boat, the boat's starting to fill up with water, and the disciples start to fear, which I'm not a mariner by any stretch of the imagination. I've not been sailing a whole bunch. Every once in a while, I'll go out on a boat on a lake and, uh, you know, enjoy that. But I'm not one to go sailing on the open ocean, or at least I haven't yet. So I imagine any little storm or choppiness would probably be like, uh, okay, we can turn around and go back now. But these guys are guys that are used to this. At least most of them are. They've been fishermen. And so for them to get so upset and for them to get so afraid about the storm means that it's probably pretty bad. And so in verse 38... Tell us what Jesus is doing during this storm. He was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Now, we have quite a bit of, of context to place this in, right? Jesus has been, you know, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus lived on this earth. It's been almost 2,000 years since this story takes place, right? So we have a lot of context and a fuller understanding of Jesus to place this in. That's why I don't necessarily know that I get super surprised when I hear that Jesus is sleeping in the midst of this terrible storm, because I know who Jesus is, right? said, I've read all of the New Testament, all that it has to say about Jesus. I've read the Old Testament telling me about who Jesus is going to be. So I understand that Jesus is the Lord of everything, and I understand that he is probably not particularly worried about the storm, because he knows he's not going to die in it. The disciples are still figuring out who Jesus is. They understand that he's a great teacher. Then maybe some of them are starting to understand that he's God. But they don't have the context to understand why Jesus is just chilling in the bottom of this boat, leaning on, it says, a cushion. You know, it could be anything from a, a seat cushion to just a bag of ballast that they keep on the, on the boat. And they don't get why Jesus is, is asleep. They don't understand. They're all terrified. And they want to know, Jesus, what are you going to do about this? And so they wake him and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And that, that statement illustrates that the disciples don't know two things that Jesus clearly does. Number one, they don't know that he cares. Of course he cares. He cares for everybody. He cares for all of us. He cares especially for these 12 guys that are with him. And Jesus knows that they're not going to perish today. He knows, what their plan, he knows what his plans are for them. He knows what's going to happen in these disciples' lives. He knows what steps he has for them to take. And so he knows that they're not going to perish. So he doesn't need, he doesn't need to worry about it. But clearly they are. And clearly they're upset. Clearly they're fearful. And so Jesus, it says in 39, he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. It says, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And I, I just, I want you to close your eyes for a second and just imagine that. I've been in some storms that have blown, and they stop pretty suddenly, but they still have like 
a few minutes of like descending power. You know, it's, it's loud, it's, it's frightful, there's wind, there's lightning, there's thunder, and then it slowly moves off, or even sometimes it quickly moves off, but you still have that, you know, that little cool down period of storm. But this is not the, this is not the case. The, the wind is raging, the water is coming, the waves are coming, and all of a sudden, it's done. And it's just smooth sea. There's no wind, and they're just sitting there. And I can't imagine having that happen, because that would be something to see. And Jesus, of course, we're familiar with what he says to them. He says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Jesus wants his disciples to understand who he is. He says, you should know by now that I have got power that you're not used to. Why are you afraid? Why do you fear when I'm with you? In verse 41, it says, They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And it says filled with great fear, and we can read that. But the, the, the idea here is they're terrified. As terrified as they were of the storm and of dying and the imminent danger that that possessed for them, they are just as terrified now because now they understand who Jesus truly is. Now they understand the kind of power that he has. He has power over wind. He has power over sea. They didn't, they didn't necessarily get that before, but they do now, and they know that this guy is somebody who is not to be messed with. They have a truer understanding now of who Jesus is. And what Jesus is trying to teach them is that when things are around, if you have me with you, even if life circumstances are difficult, you don't need to fear. And so what can we learn? What's the key to facing fear in this passage? First is we do not need to fear what the world throws at us. Psalm 46, 1 through 3 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. The psalmist here says that God is our refuge. God is a place that we can hide. When, when things are going all crazy around us, and we need that safety, we need that shelter, that's found in God. It says he's very present help in trouble. When we have needs, God is there and God will help. And so it says, even if, the, even if the earth gives way, the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, the waters roar and foam, which a lot of these things are what disciples are familiar with, right? The water's just been roaring, it's been foaming. Though the mountains tremble at its swelling, we do not need to fear because God is there. Not only do we not need to fear what the world throws at us, when the fear rears its head, we must turn to God. Fear is a, at least in my life, a pretty constant companion, it seems. Especially in these times when the world seems to be going crazy and when everything is different and nothing is what I expect it to be. 
fear crops up pretty quickly. But Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, tells us that we should not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. There's certainly enough in the world to be anxious about, isn't there? I can think of any one of about a thousand different things that uh, have threatened to cause me anxiety in the past 20 minutes. But what Paul says here, said when life throws something at you that you could be anxious about, you turn and you pass it on to God. I taught PE last year, and uh, the kids like to play a number of different games. One of the games that I thought was maybe just a time filler that they seemed to really love was playing hot potato. And you've probably played hot potato or seen somebody play it, but you have a ball or bean bag or something that you have, and you just pass it around. And you play music, or maybe you count, or maybe you just turn around and you blow the whistle at a certain point. But at a certain point, you stop the game. And when you stop the game, whoever has the ball or beanbag or whatever it is, is out, right? So the point is to get rid of that thing as soon as you can, as soon as it gets passed to you. I used to be, um, I used to play it a lot when I was a kid, uh, different things, different times. I had to be really good at like not even really holding the thing. Like if somebody would throw a ball to me, I just like really quick, just like pass it on and probably hit it like 12 feet over the person's head. But the point was I didn't have it anymore, right? I wanted to get rid of it. That's what Paul is saying to do here with the things that cause us anxiety. As soon as you get it, as soon as something comes up that causes you anxiety, pass it along. Get rid of it. Give it to God. And it's a constant thing too. Fear can be persistent. Fear can be strong. It can hang around a while. And so every time that anxiety raises its head, we need to turn and give it to God. Then if you must fear anything, fear God. Jesus says this himself, right? In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, it says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He says, you know, there are a lot of things in this world that can cause us bodily harm. There are a lot of things that in this world that can kill our physical body. But the physical body dying is not the worst thing in the world that can happen. That's simply a doorway. It's simply a connection to a different a different life, a life for the believer that is with God in Christ. Jesus says you should rather fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That's what the disciples learned here, isn't it? That Jesus is the one who has the power over things that can cause us fear. If you go on and you read it in Mark chapter 5, there's stories about how Jesus can control the demonic world and how Jesus can control disease and Jesus can control death. Jesus has power that the disciples are not yet able to understand. But Jesus says that fearing the one who has control over those things, that's the one to fear. But he goes on to say, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value 
than many sparrows. Jesus says the only one that should be feared is the one who can destroy soul and body in hell. But that one cares so deeply for you that he knows how many hair, how many hairs are on the top of your head. The Bible goes, the Bible says in Psalms and Proverbs many times, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And we need to understand how powerful God is. We need to understand who Jesus was. What, who Jesus is and the power that he has so that we can begin to understand what God calls us to do, what God calls for us in our lives. So we don't need to fear when circumstances are difficult. The next story we're going to look at tells us that we do not need to fear when we're following Jesus. Turn over to Matthew chapter 14. In Matthew chapter 14, we have just, uh, for some context, um, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people, well, 5,000 men, and then women and children also, and all, he ha- all they could find food-wise was a little boy's lunch who had five loaves and two fish. And Jesus says, all right, that'll do. Um, bring it up. They have the people sit down. He prays. He blesses the food. And then he breaks it apart and tells the people to start passing it out. And, uh, you know, everybody eats. Everybody has enough. There's a bunch left over. And Jesus has, uh, you know, he's done this, this great work. And then in chapter 20, or verse 22 of chapter 14, I'm sorry, says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat, go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. I love how matter-of-fact that is. He's like, yeah, the boat's, you know, partway across the lake, and Jesus comes walking up to him, and yeah, that's, that's just how it is. In verse 26, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it's I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So Peter, you know, poor Peter, he he sticks his foot in a lot. In this case, literally, he sticks his foot in in the water. But um, he, uh, you know, the disciples there, they're in the boat, they're trying to make their way to the other side, and it doesn't sound like this is the worst storm in the world, but they're just, they're fighting the wind. It's taking them a long time to get where they're trying to go. And Jesus has gone away. Jesus needed some alone time. He goes and he prays, and then once he's done praying, evening came, he comes down the mountain, walks across the water, 
because, you know, figured he'd catch up with them and rather than beat them on the other side. He walks across the water to where they are in the boat. And because the disciples have not seen too many people walk on the water before, they don't expect Jesus to come at them this way. And so they're like, well, this is clearly some kind of spirit, some kind of ghost that's coming towards us. We should probably, you know, be careful. And they're afraid because I would be afraid if I saw somebody walking across the water to me. I don't expect to see that, especially on a night, in the middle of the night, in a storm. And so Jesus calms them down and says, it's me. It's me. You don't have to be afraid. It's just, it's just me. And Peter, because he wants to be sure, says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. It's interesting there, and this is a point that I don't know that I thought about until I was getting ready for this. It's interesting that, that Peter says to Jesus, command me to come out. Come, you know, it's very clear. He's, he's asking Jesus to tell him to do that. And so Jesus, he obliges. In verse 29, he said, come. Jesus commands Peter to get out of the, bo- to get out of the boat and to walk to him. And said, it's, it's interesting to me that, that Peter asked for that and he waited for that. He wanted Jesus to tell him to do that. And so he does, and then, of course, sees the wind, the waves, He starts to fear. He takes his eyes off Jesus, and he begins to sink. And Jesus saves him, reaches out his hand, grabs him, and he says to him the question again, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Then he gets in the boat, the wind stops, and then they go on to the other side. As we follow Jesus' commands, undoubtedly there will be things that attempt to distract us and pull our thoughts and emotions away from our mission our desire, and our goal. Instead of letting our circumstances pull our eyes away from our goal, we must learn to combat this fear. When we are following Jesus, there are going to be things in our life that, ca- that can cause fear. Jesus never promised us an easy walk. He said the road is narrow and it's hard. He said, he did not say in his... Uh, High priestly prayer in John, take heart because the road is nice and easy from here on out and you can just uh, kind of coast your way on into, into heaven, into my presence. He says, take heart, I've overcome the world. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And so, rather than letting the circumstances around us pull our eyes from Jesus, we must learn to combat this fear. And so how, what's the key to facing fear? We must keep keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Hebrews 12, of course, says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He said, there are things around us as we run this race of life that want to hold us back, want to weigh us down. Fear is one of those things that wants to weigh us down. And he says, we have to lay those things aside and focus on Jesus. 
If we focus our eyes on Jesus and if we keep moving, we'll leave those things behind. And we'll be able to run the race looking to Jesus. It says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. You know, Jesus experienced so much worse than I have faced in my life. And yet he never gave up. And if he is with me, then I must not give up either. So we must keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We also must remember that Jesus is with us. A little bit later on in Hebrews, it says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? There will be opposition as we try to live the Christian life. Sometimes strict opposition, sometimes deadly opposition. Church history is an interest of mine, and I've spent some time studying it. And as I look back on people who have gone before us, people who have lived the Christian life in much worse circumstances than we have, to watch them live and die with joy and with purpose and without fear is an inspiration to me because my life today is much easier than they had it. I don't have people threatening to tie me up to a stake and burn me because I'm a Christian, because I believe in Jesus. And even if I do, even if I do come to that, the Lord is my helper. He's with me. I don't need to fear what a man can do to me. So we must keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We must remember that Jesus is with us. We can, we can count on God to lift us up in troubled times. Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. When times are hard, when times are difficult, and when fear threatens to creep in our door, we can remember that God is with us, that God will strengthen us, and that God will hold us up. So rather than drowning in fear and anxiety, we can cling to God because he's promised that he will never let us go. So we do not need to fear when circumstances are difficult. We do not need to fear when we are following Jesus. And finally, we do not need to fear representing God in front of his enemies. Turn over to Mark chapter 14. We're almost, we're almost through here. Again, um, this is a story that we've talked about quite a bit in, in recent weeks. Peter is uh, trying to, to sneak in and find out what he can about Jesus and what's going on. And this is Mark chapter 14, verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warning, warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the, the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you were one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. 
And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Now there's discussion and debate about how many times a rooster crowed and, and how that looks. But the point I want to focus on in this passage is that Peter has decided to um, try to sneak into the co- courtyard and to figure out what's going on with Jesus. And he wants to do that. He wants to know what's going on. But he doesn't want enough to know that he risks himself being exposed. And so when people start to identify him and they think, oh, you were with Jesus. We, we recognize you. You were with Jesus. He's like, no, I, 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 I'm not with him. I don't know what you're talking about. And he sees he tries to, tries to leave there. He tries to go to a different place and just says, no, no, you were with Jesus. I saw it. I, I know you were with him. And he denies it again. And then in verse 70, you know, somebody, one of the bystanders, one of the people that's around says, oh, no, you're, you're one of him. You, you're a Galilean. He hangs out with a bunch of Galileans. You, you were with Jesus. And he's so afraid of what will happen to him if his link to Jesus is discovered that he's, no, I'm not. And he says he begins to, to curse and swear. I, I don't know who you're talking about. Leave me alone. And then the rooster crows, and Peter's reminded of what Jesus said. Peter cannot be a secret disciple, and we shouldn't either. True believers will present themselves by their attitudes, their actions, and words. We can't let fear hold us back from being devoted to service. Now, I'm not trying to say that Peter should have done or what he shouldn't have done or anything like that. But I do know that in this world, there will be times where you will be presented with a choice. Do I show that I'm a believer or do I try to hide it? There may be times that you face being mocked, being made fun of for your faith. There may be times where you face financial repercussions because of your faith. There may be times where you face a life and death choice for your faith. We don't need to fear representing God. What's the key to facing that fear? First and foremost, it's remembering that we are God's. And in his hands we have nothing to fear. Isaiah chapter 43 says, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. See, when we face repercussions for our faith, we have to remember that what we represent is much stronger than what we face. The Lord who is over all things, who is over the wind, the waves, who is over demonic forces, who is over disease and death. He created us. He formed us. He knows us. He's bought us. 
And so we don't need to fear whatever we face because what holds us is much stronger. Secondly, God's not equipped us with a fearful spirit. Second Timothy says, For this reason I remind you, this is Paul talking to Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. I've met many Christians who have forgotten this verse because they live with a spirit of fear. And as Christians, we don't have to live with a spirit of fear. We don't have to be afraid because we have power and love and self-control. So when things come up against us that cause us fear, we should have the ability to remember that God is against it and that the Spirit who lives in us gives us the power to face those things and that love that He has given us holds us through any trial and self-control to keep our minds focused on those two facts. So we are God's. In His hands we have nothing to fear. God's not equipped us with a fearful spirit. And number three, the antidote to our fear is love. 1 John 4.18 There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. As we follow God, as we follow Him and seek to do His will, we work within His love. His love works in us. His love works through us. And so as we go to spread His love, no matter what happens as we do that, we can rest in the love that God has for us and in showing that love to others. Fear is powerful, and I don't want to deny that fact. Fear is a powerful thing. It's a big business in our society. It's easy to make a lot of money by preying on people's fears or by trying to cause fear. It's a powerful, and it's a constant battle in our world. I remind you that I've been preaching this message to myself as much to anyone here, or anyone watching our stream or listening to the recording. We as believers, as we're in this world, but not of it, must try to displace the fear that we can face with faith. So what can we do this week to live without fear? The first thing is to remind ourselves that the God we serve is bigger than any worldly circumstances. Um, I'm reminded of the uh, old VeggieTales story and the song that says, God is bigger than the boogeyman or the monsters on TV. God, whatever we fear, God is bigger than that. And we can trust him and we can rest in him even if we have to remind ourselves every hour that God is bigger, we must constantly remind ourselves of that fact. The second, as we walk through this week, keep Jesus at the forefront of everything we do. As we get up in the morning, we make ourselves breakfast. Remember that we make ourselves breakfast for the glory of God. As we drive to work, as we work, we work for the glory of God. and We work in His power. We work because of his love. 
as you go to get the mail. If you fear getting the mail, remember that we get the mail for the glory of God. And we respond in the way that he would have us respond. Everything that we do, no matter how big, no matter how small, Jesus must be at the center of that. Third, we must love others completely in everything we do. Whatever it is, we show our, our complete love. No matter what they think, no matter what they believe, no matter, um, no matter what, we love others completely. Then we trust God completely, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I trust you remember that story of Daniel's three friends who were faced with a choice. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he just had, he just had this dream about how great his kingdom was going to be in comparison. And so he builds this giant image. And uh, Daniel, Daniel's three friends are faced with a choice. Will they bow down to the image or will they not and face the consequences? And they, of course, choose not to. And Daniel chapter 3 provides us with a powerful reminder of God's power. It says in verse, uh, verse 14 of Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? I can imagine facing that choice, either worshiping a false god or death, would cause some fear. It causes fear in my heart to think about. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in verse 16, answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had decided that no matter what, they were going to live in faith, not in fear. And if you know the rest of the story, Nebuchadnezzar is furious. He throws the three guys in this fiery furnace, and, uh, and they, they come out. They look in, they see them with a fourth person, and, they, and uh, the king calls them out and rewards them for their faith in God. And so this week, trust God completely. And then remember, last of all, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you do care for us. And in the midst of this wild world, where so much happens on a daily basis that can cause fear, can cause concern, can cause anxiety to, to crop up, God, thank you that you are in control of all things and that we can trust you no matter what. And Lord, as we go, out, go about our week, I pray that you would remind us of those things. Remind us to keep you at the forefront of everything we do, because we understand that you are the one who has control over it all. Father, help us to not live in fear, but to live in love, 
and to show your love to those around us. And Father, we might just trust you in everything. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming out today. You're dismissed.